Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, joined again today by my colleague and friend Joshua Blank. Josh, how are you today as the, as the, as the year winds down? I feel pretty good. You know, yeah, I like I like the holiday season, right? Yeah, well, good. You know, why not? Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I I, I think I, I'm still waiting for the onset a little bit more, but that may have more to do with our work schedule and having been under the weather last week than anything. But it's still, I, you know, it's still not looking totally like the holidays to me or feeling that way. Well, no, anyway. and it's, well, and especially with this, I mean, you know, this like stupid text I was like, and this. Dang, you know, slight like warm front that's come through here yeah. has really kind of messed with it. Yeah, I think that's a. I think that's a. a you know, that's a humidity good point. and sweating in the holidays don't really feel. Yeah, when it's hot and clammy, it's not. You know. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> well, you know, it's only December twelfth, but you know, as we sit here at the at UT Austin on campus, I mean, it, it always feels like the end of the year comes a little sooner here. Oh yeah. As things shut down, parking very easy today. Right. Um, the end of the year, though, is objectively close. Um, this will be the last podcast of the year for us. So, you know, I wanted to do something that helps us set the stage for next year, but also helps us in some ways to look back at what we've done. We've done a lot of polling this year. Yeah, and turns out. <laughs> and it's been, a it, as we've talked about in, in several circumstances, different contexts, it's been a fast and you know, somewhat frantic year in some ways. It certainly has felt that way to me, um, you know, as we worked into some new workflows. And, and you know, election years. Is, they're election years. They're so. kind of relentless, yeah. you know. Um, so, you know, as we've talked about this, what we thought we'd do today for the podcast was sort of use a few key numbers that we've pulled out of mostly our data for mostly this year, although, you know, we go back a little further for a couple things that that kind of have, that, that we think have implications for politics in Texas uh, in 2023. And that's, you know, including what looms, you know, the legislative session, which of course looms large in, in our lives and, and here in Austin and for people that follow Texas government and politics closely. So in a way that it allows us to kind of take stock a little bit, but with an eye towards really what's coming up. Right. I mean, and, you know, we've, we've been going to events and talking to reporters and, you know, I've done many panels and things like this in the last six, eight weeks or so, including a couple of things last week. And it's very much in the air. I mean, I, everybody's trying to balance that. There's certainly a lot of... Uh you know, sometimes you walk into a session and it's clear like, oh, this is the thing. And then sometimes it's like you walk into a session, it's like, okay, everybody's competing over what the thing is. Yeah. And right now you hear a lot of different versions of kind of what what the focus is going to be. And obviously, you know, this is going to unfold. But like we're in that period right now. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, I mean, we were, we've had that version of that conversation. I'm thinking, I think in some ways, you know, I wonder, you know, I don't know that we have so much less clarity this time. But I do think that the factors that are that are driving, you know, I feel kind of certain about the factors that are driving the uncertainty. Let's put it that way, right? Yeah. I mean, in other words, I think that you know the end of the election year, 
the results of the election and the way, you know, as we've talked on the podcast a lot, the election fits into the sequence of the last couple of elections, say the last three elections, you know, they kind of clarify what some of the questions are, even if we don't, you know, without knowing how it's going to shake out. And I'm sensing a lot of that out there. Yeah. And I don't think that this is necessarily like, you know, there's less clarity now than there normally is or anything like that. I mean, and I, I, you know, I think I said it this way, but I'll be even more specific. Like, I think sometimes there are sessions where it's very clear what is going to be at least one or a couple of the priorities like that is, you know, you say that's set in stone. You can bet on that. Yeah. And then when in a session that doesn't have, you know, those clear anchor points that everybody just knows is, is are going to be a big piece of, you know, attention, then you're kind of at this level of clarity, which is where we are now, which is kind of, you know, trying to figure out who who's going to get what and what the, what, what there's gonna be time for. And yeah. And, yeah, and who's going to be, you know, and, and who, you know, who's going to be successful at driving what they want to drive. Right. So, so like, you know, so let's dive into this. We've, you know, we've taken, like I said, five or so numbers, you know, as, as points of departure. And one of them actually speaks to this, like, yeah, you know, things that have seemed certain things that I, you know, what, and so we'll start with this number. We'll start with 60%. And 60% is the share of Republican voters who said that, Immigration and the border was the issue area most important to their vote in 2022. And in that same poll that I pulled that out, our, our, our most recent poll so far, October uh, of 2022, 45% said the state spends too little on border security spending, 33 said about the right amount, and only 11% too much. And even though we didn't kind of lay it out that way, this is, I think, a perfect example of this kind of certainty, uncertainty balance. Right. So on one hand, we're like broken records about how consistent this kind of result is. But I think that how this is going to shake out this session because of what's happened, not only in the election, but in the last two years, year of- and a half, two years yeah. is, is really interesting. Um, we added the spending number to the, to the notes and that that's a good ad because on one hand, we know what Republican attitudes are in border security and immigration. Mm-hmm. We know that Governor Abbott ran pretty hard on this as a component of his of his campaign. Whether it was in all the ads, it was certainly part of his effort to secure the base in running into and during the election. But we also know, as we've said in here a lot, they're spending an awful lot of money. Well, right. And I mean, it was also certainly a feature of a lot of down ballot races. And part of the reason, again, we're broken record on this number, but it's important because it it conditions, you know, the political speak. But now as we transition from the campaign, you know, season in which especially, you know, a lot of, you know, post redistricting, you know, down ballot from the statewide level, you had a lot of Democrats running in very Democratic districts, a lot of Republicans running in very Republican districts. And if you want to talk to the most Republicans about an issue that they care about, immigration and border security remains that issue. But as you're you know, alluding to, and I'll just be more specific here, as spending and funding for border security has gone up over the last two years, in between the last time the legislature came and provided funding for DPS and border security operations, yeah. ultimately that seems like you know, that budget has increased from probably you know, around a billion dollars to close to over $4 billion. Yeah. Now, a lot well, of- even that's just in- yeah, and that, I mean, look, and this is all just these are all approximate, but you right. know, as a lot of people would point out, you know, these numbers are kind of are necessary even just to kind of keep up the troop levels. I mean, there's just a lot of spending that goes into this. So, you know, I think this one of the real questions that this this issue raises is, you know, if you've got 
this budget surplus of which so far under the spending cap, there's about $12 billion or so to spend unless you budget the budget cap, the spending cap, which is possible. That's yeah. a separate question. But let's say there's $12 billion. put a pin in that. We'll put Go a ahead. pin in that. Yeah, write that down. But let's say there's about $12 billion as a starting point. You know, you figure that, you know, without COVID money to basically make the agencies whole, that a lot of the money was moved from to pay for Operation Lone Star and, you know, again, ongoing expenses for that. That's a big chunk. Yeah. I mean, so just as a starting point, you know, I think that's something that we need to acknowledge here is that's like a big, I think, opening first question. I mean, that's sort of not even really, really high on the radar of like the policy things that people are talking about, but like how much and how and how long are is the legislature going to continue sort of or is going to make this operation whole really going forward? Because it's a big ticket item. Yeah. And I, you know, you know, we were both at the. the legislative preview event that the that the Texas Tribune did last week on Friday, I guess, and um, Thursday, 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 and I think on one hand, you know, I didn't have legislators on that panel. I did I did moderate the panel of reporters, but I've yet to you know have anybody suggest you know when I've asked somewhat rhetorically, you know, if there are concerns about spending more than four billion dollars on border security, who is the first Republican in the legislature that's going to raise their hand and say that? In a definite way in open court. And I, you know, I don't see a lot of takers. Exactly. But it, but it's interesting because this is one of those ways where, the, you know, I think that the very clear political constraints around immigration and the border are going to create some real, like, fundamental mechanical constraints in yeah. terms of on the budget. Almost immediately, if the if the if basically the goal is going to be, OK, we're going to continue this at current spending levels, if not higher. Well, OK, that's that's a lot of the surplus. Whether it's $12 billion, whether it's $24 billion, yeah, it's, Right. It's well, still, I mean, you know, you have big, to, I mean, number. I guess, you know, to—, to I think a little over two billion has been added in the interim. I think by the time you added everything up in the regular session, it was around two, and now it's north of four. Right. So that still is, yeah, as you say, a pretty big chunk. And I, you know, and I would add to that. I mean, you know, I did a, a moderate another panel on Wednesday that mm-hmm. involved state legislators, and I, you know, most interestingly, this was a panel that was focused on higher education, mm-hmm. and. Towards the end of the panel, as, you know, the legislators talked about, it was for the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board. You know, largely good discussion, fairly positive. Probably a lot of people in the room heard things they wanted to hear about, you know, the enthusiasm for things like workforce development and affordability and et cetera. But I tried to press them a little bit. And I just say, you know, in particular, appropriations chair, expected appropriations chair, again, uh, uh, Representative Greg Bonin about where higher ed would be in the queue. Yeah. And, you know, there was a moment there. I mean, it was interesting. There was a moment as we were talking about these priorities where the Democrat on the panel, Senator Jose Menendez, said, look, I think we all just have to say that the elephant in the room is that property taxes is the number one thing right now on the agenda for the leadership that everybody is going to try to do something about. And that's going to, you know, that's going to have to be taken care of first, essentially. That's putting words in his mouth a little bit, but that was the point. Yeah. Well, Chairman Bonin then kind of made it a point to circle back and say, look, I just want to be clear. I think we can do property tax relief and higher ed. It's not an either or. We can do something on both of those fronts. Sure. Now, what that made me think was that exactly, sure, (laughs) um, how many different conferences, you know, if I was to do a public ed conference the next day, or had moderated a panel on border security the day after that. I mean, I think there are a lot of people saying, well, we can do more than one thing. But as we've said in here before, this is a little like, you know, 
the psychology of, you know, getting a windfall, right? Yes, you, you, you could spend it a lot of times in your head, and there's a lot of heads in the legislature doing that. So it's a very interesting political question about here that I, you know, I don't think there's a clear answer to this. At this yeah, point. and I think what you're talking about here about, you know, sort of how much real estate there is on the agenda yeah. is something that, you know, I think we're going to come back to a couple right. of times going through these points and sort of where there are some, some challenges here is right. going to be, have to do with, again, yeah. the limited attention time space, all the things everybody knows about who probably listens to this podcast, but the fact that all those features that already make legislating, you know, during the 140-day session difficult, it's not like the addition of the money makes it easier. Right. Which, which is why, which leads us to the next number, right? right? So the next number I have on here is 52%. 52% is the share of Republicans, and again, we've got a couple of Republican numbers here because we're talking about politics and the governing coalition largely. 52% was the share of Republicans who said in our April 2022 poll that population growth is bad for the state. This really, I think, brings this issue, you know, this this notion of what the carrying capacity is of this of the of the money on hand is. Because there's a really interesting kind of emerging discussion in legislative circles, particularly, you know, in this kind of, well, it depends on your audience, maybe. Mm-hmm. But it, I keep hearing people talking about infrastructure. We heard about it on Thursday. Yeah, We're hearing about it from, you know, non-trivial actors in the process who are talking about transportation, who are talking about water, mm-hmm. who are talking about, you know, social infrastructure, Right. And that was sort of that's the the theme of some of the education discussions. And we're going to we're going to hit education in a minute. But it's not the kind of thing that's getting a lot of public airing. But when we the reason I chose this number is that there are a lot of reasons, obviously, that people might think that population growth is bad for Texas. Sure. And we've talked about that in here, given demographics, given cultural politics. But we've done a lot of polling, both here and in some of our other work, that suggests that it's not just that. I mean, people feel like the state, in many policy areas, is not managing its growth very well. Healthcare would be another one. Um, rural areas, and I, and so I think that I picked this number because I I really do wonder if there's a through line here in these in these infrastructure discussions. And as we've talked about in here before, we were just talking about a few minutes ago before we, we started recording, you know, these big infrastructure packages wind up taking more than one session. There's just no two ways about that. People talked about water for, if you go back to the very beginning, you know, kind of close for a, to a, for a decade, close to a decade before we got the big water infrastructure funding design and all that infrastructure that was passed in 2013, which I would also add relevant to this is those entities are on sunset review this time. Right. So, you know, I, I think that that is out there. I mean, you know, and it's a really open question about whether, you know, to the extent that we, you know, we, as we think about this, about who is willing to spend time and political capital on this. At a point, you know, I mean, I, I believe infrastructure. The Lieutenant Governor even mentioned infrastructure, I think, in, in his agenda-setting press conference a, a couple of weeks ago. You know, I think this is out there, and, and I, I just wonder how much of it is going to coalesce or whether it's going to get kind of lost in the shuffle. Because there are going to be opportunities to talk about this pursuant to the sunset discussion, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I mean, I think you've covered most of what I think is interesting about this. I mean, I'll just say, you know, this is one of those interesting things that I think hits at a very interesting 
complicated intersection, right? I mean, Texas, Texas and Texas's elected officials really take it as a as a, a point of pride they return to over and over again, the state's business friendliness, right? And being friendly to business isn't simply about low regulations or low taxes. It's also about having the infrastructure that allows businesses to yeah. operate. And that means roads. That means houses that their workers can live in. It's a lot of water to make chips. Reliable internet, a lot of water to make <laughs> chips, a lot of electricity, right? Yeah. To, to, it's a lot, it takes a lot of electricity to run uh, Bitcoin farms, right? right. I mean, ultimately, uh, and, and, you know, and we've cataloged sort of negative, evalu- you know, continuing negative evaluations of that about the trajectory of the state. You know, we've done various, you know, polling that shows a certain amount of dissatisfaction with a lot of the basic services. So, I mean, there is a, there's like a clearly a need here. And I'm going back to where we started, you know, there's a, a big sur- budget surplus. And I'm thinking if I'm a big trade group, you know, it's not like I'm necessarily looking for like another tax cut, although I wouldn't mind it. I mean, there's certainly discussions about that going on. But really, I mean, in a lot of cases, what you need is you need road and you need fiber, Yeah. you know, in a lot of places. At the same time, it's really bad politics, right? Infrastructure projects take forever. You know, I, I love this right. example. I return to this. It's a good one, which is, you know, any major transportation project is about a 10-year project. So for a politician who's going to be have five elections in that time period, yeah. you know, essentially all you're delivering to people is more bad traffic before they actually get the solution in the case right. of, let's say, for example, you know, something like that. And then I think this number that you raise, you know, the you know, sort of the the fifty two percent who say the population growth is bad. Again, there's a lot of dimensionality to, to what people are reacting to when they're reacting to population growth. But I think you know, living in Austin, I think you feel this a lot. But it's not totally clear what the what the I'm putting this in quotes, like what the correct ideological right. response is to growth and the policy response to yeah. Right. And so that creates a lot of, I think, you know, not only they're not landmines because they're known, it's limits because it's unknown. I mean, ultimately, you know, when you get into this sort of development stuff and infrastructure stuff, you can have a lot of very progressive Democrats who don't look very progressive anymore. And you can have a lot of business friendly Republicans who may not may not understand the importance of these infrastructure projects to kind of long term, you know, business, you know, vitality in an area. And so this is just one of those areas that's like, ooh, you know, and to your point, I mean, in the past when it has been something like water. Or the transportation, the point was to build up momentum. And I remember, I mean, when we were doing some polling around the water stuff, I remember we polled on on that amendment, yeah, which we didn't really want to do, but we did it anyway. You know, it was a long time ago. But ultimately, what you find is at that at that by that point in time, most people had understood and were kind of made aware of the fact that like this is important, key infrastructure. We have to do this. Right. But that took time, right? This isn't right. on people's. Well, and that's you know, yeah, that's ex- that's very late in the process, right? Yeah. And and what was painstaking about that was how much of work has to be done in ways that are not. I I, I don't want to say out of the public view because as soon as you say out of the public view, you know, I'm, right. that's not really what I meant. It's just. But in parts of the process that are not salient to the public and that are not watched, I mean, you know, there's a lot of coalition building. But the public, you know, you know, I, I use the number of Republicans. But if you look at the overall responses to that, you know, only a third of respondents in that poll said that population growth was good for the state. And the difference along party lines was, you know, most noticeable in the sense that the people that didn't have an opinion – there was there was a lot more you know sort of lack of commitment or attention among Democrats and independents than among Republicans. Yeah, which again I think speaks to this overall issue, which is I think it's you know people might be seeing that you know different things are being read into the question at that point possibly. But, yeah, I think that's but, right, but I, but I also think part of this is that you know you know again this is the nature of the question and all the kind of stuff, but you know I think for a lot of people this is this is mixed. I yeah. mean ultimately right, and, and I think that's 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 what's sort of so so tricky here, but you know. Ultimately, it does have like a very, you know, 
very kind of clear potential constraint when it comes to well, how much money are we going to spend right. on infrastructure, right? When you know when you look at this and you say, well, is, who's clamoring for infrastructure? Well, no, we say, well, nobody right now per se, except for the fact that all of this infrastructure costs. I mean, the other piece of this has gotten much more expensive than it was yeah. a year ago. Yeah, that came up in one of those panels at the at the something we saw. Yeah, I think we were both preview, there. I think it was yeah. a, with one of the Tribune yeah. panels that people were talking about the increased costs. But you know, I, I think the other piece of this is you know this is a little bit by way of transition. One of the things that's interesting to me about this is you know trying to parse out where the you know I, I, I wrote down when you used the works. I've been using it a lot in trying to you know and I'm still not sure it's quite right, but. Where the energy is in terms of what we used to think about as the very powerful kind of developmentalist coalition in the state. Yeah. You know, and this goes, you know, back a long time to previous periods of rapid development in the state's history that involves, you know, when the Democrats were running the show, you know, it's thought of as kind of centrist. From some perspective, it's sort of Mm pro-business. But how that impulse, let's call it, right. you know, where that lives right now and how powerful it is, you know, the ability of people that see governing and see, you know, this kind of development, this developmental impulse is part of the governing responsibility of the legislature. It's hard to get a read on where that is right now to me, vis-a-vis all the other powerful things. That's why I really enjoy, I mean, you raising like that work we did almost a decade ago now, I guess, in terms of the the constitutional amendment and the run up to all that, you know, really underlines the importance of being able to to carve something like that out in the agenda, sustain a multi year effort to get it in front of people and to actually get these big structural institutional, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, subsystems put in place. It's just so noisy around that right now. Yeah, well, and I mean, the thing is, you know, like, look, you know, we're smart guys. That stuff is really complicated. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the whole financing mechanism set up for water right. back then was was pretty complicated. And I was, you know, I mean, when you're talking, I was just thinking to myself, and we can move on from infrastructure to something a lot more salient yeah. to people here in a second. But I mean, I also wonder to what extent, you know, because of the winter storms, because of continued, uh, you know, I think concern over the possibility of any sort of, you know, stoppage in the generation of, of the state's electrical power. Right. You know, ultimately, I wonder, you know, that's going to take up a lot of yeah. mental well, energy and resources around the infrastructure question that kind of makes some of this other stuff like, well, are we also going to do transportation? Yeah, it's hard to imagine. And, you know, I think this is something else that's kind of, I mean, the you know, because of the complexity you're talking about, I had written this thing because you mentioned the grid and passing as part of the infrastructure. I mean, that is not settled. No. There's a big fight going on about that, right? There, there are several big fights going on right. ar- around that right now that have to do with, you know, as fundamental a question that's been moving that there's not agreement in the state's key leaders about, about who's actually going to do this. Right. Because, you know, a plan has been put forth, which has re- received significant pushback, particularly in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And Lieutenant Governor Patrick has staked out a very interesting position on this that is very different than that is that is, I think, in, in important ways, different than the position the governor has taken. And in some ways, very subtly antagonistic. And we're going to come back to that. But and so that I think you're right that that has to be settled, I think. And I don't know how you settle the other stuff before you settle that or or at least divert people's attention. Although, again, you know, there will be a lot of different centers of power on this. Now, we talked about this developmental politics. 
the next number points to like, you know, maybe the alternative vision <laughs> yeah. of, of where the agenda should be. So, you know, uh, another, you know, the next number I, I would start with is a departure point is 50%. And that's from our August 2022 poll. And 50% is the share of Republicans who said that they disagreed that same-sex marriage should be legal in Texas. Right. So in a time when there's been a lot of discussion of, you know, about how the social policy and the cultural politics of the legislature in the last couple of sessions has been, particularly last session, has been out of step with identifiable majorities in Texas public opinion, you know, it's important to keep in mind that the cultural currents in the Republican Party still are still feeding a very powerful counter-reaction to what I think a lot of people, particularly, you know, Democrats, I suppose, but, you know, a non-trivial share of Republicans, you know, had thought of as a much broader social and institutional acceptance of the secular expansion of rights, not just the gay people and LGBTQ constituencies, if I can call them that, but for that matter to women. I mean, I led with gay marriage because the number is so striking, you know, and, and I made a lot of it kind of at the time when we were doing media on this because we hadn't asked about gay marriage in a right. while. And it was a reminder. It's like, still a pretty big chunk of people that are very resistant out there. But the politics around LGBTQ issues and abortion in the last two years in Texas have underlined, you know, the dynamic that this is not settled in very stark terms. Um, obviously, Dobbs underlined that at the national level and underlined you know, just how many differences there are regionally and in the different states. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's one of the critical dynamics that I think is another open question that we're going to see play out in this in this session. I mean, I think, you know, there are issues that many urban and secular people thought were settled and in a sense subject only to a kind of, you know, rear guard, yeah. you know, action um, that are pretty obviously not settled for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's there's been a, you know, a certain confusing of, let's I would say, you know, pop, you know, I'd say progress in the, I don't know, yeah, I think it's what I mean, it's progress in the popular culture with respect towards depictions of uh, various different minority groups and not just racial and ethnic, but obviously also, you know, in terms of sexual right. orientation and gender identity. And there's been a confusion of, I think, the prevalence of those images for consensus. Yeah. And I think the point is, you know, and you could have picked, I mean, we kind of had a little back and forth. I mean, we could have picked, we could have picked a bunch of different numbers for this right. to, to illustrate this point. We're just picking one here to kind of, again, make this point. Even though, you know, we look at the last legislative session, we had noted, you know, it's, you know, how conservative it was. I think many members, and again, in these legislative previews are still, you know, I think taking credit for it being the most conservative session. So I think, you know, it's it's fair to call it that. And we pointed out throughout, you know, throughout last, you know, throughout the 2021 year and in 2022, where, you know, I think policy was deviating from kind of the central tendency of public opinion in Texas. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it is that that, that that policy has deviated significantly from the central tendency in Republican opinion in Texas. And so when right. we're talking about a lot of these cultural issues that it feels like, you know, the legislature went so far on last time, um, you know, there's not really anything underlying like the let's say the voting populace that would lead anyone to say, oh, well, is this going to change? You know, and I think the best example I have is, you know, uh, is in terms of what to my mind would be about, you know, abortion policy. We could have picked an abortion number for this. But, you know, a lot of a lot of reporters have asked me, well, you know, now that like 
you know, know, the legislature has gone so far in basically banning abortion on almost all circumstances in a state that obviously, you know, the majority of the public is not for this. You know, do you expect them to kind of move back in the other direction in my Isn't hand? the thermostat going to kick Isn't in? Isn't the thermostat going to kick in? I said, and one of the things I've just been saying to people, and it's true, and I sort of realize this myself, is, yeah, but like all that data was there. So, I mean, you know, when we talk about where abortion yeah. attitudes are in 2021 and 2022, that's pretty much where abortion attitudes were in 2019 and 2016, really even in 2013, 2014. Yeah. And the laws were passed, right? The six-week, you know, uh, ban was passed. The trigger law was passed. The vigilante, you know, law was passed. The enforcement mechanism. All this was passed under that 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 structure and that set of that set of public yeah. attitudes. And they all still exist. So this is just to say, you know, if if anybody is necessarily thinking like, oh, well, the thermostat's going to kick back on and we're going to move back to something a little more moderate. I actually think, you know, this is a good example of, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, ultimately, yeah. there's still a lot of appetite among Republicans for, you know, I would say, you know, conservative policies and, you know, returning yeah. to conservative social structures and norms. We see that all throughout the data. We could have picked, again, a bunch of different numbers that would point to this. But there's a lot of appetite for, tra- you know, quote unquote, traditional social structures among Republican voters. And Republicans are institutionally positioned to deliver that. And, and, a lot of legislators feel institutional incentives in that direction, right? right? Given something we talked about in here a lot, of course, the you know the systematic weakness of the Democratic yeah. Party, the primaries as a filtering s- system for this, et cetera. Now, now in terms of the uncertainty going into the session, I think the one question becomes like, I mean, like I said, we could start making a list of all the potential things that could kind of fall under this category of sort of you know whatever we want to call it, you know, uh, yeah. socially polarizing policy. Well, look, or, look at yeah, you can look at a lot of early bill filings by the usual suspects for this. And right. I think you know traditionally what we what we tend to think about this kind of stuff is like you know again a similar thing. There's only so much room on the agenda, and also, this kind of stuff takes a lot of time and makes a lot of hurt feelings along the way. So in terms of, you know, we've talked before about how they pace out, you know, another abortion bill when it comes out in the session kind of matters, right? But if you have, you know, more abortion restrictions, you know, attempts to, you know, limit the rights of LGBTQ people, uh, you know, more forays into public schools, you know, which we'll get to in a second. Yeah. You know, ultimately, like that just that's a lot of floor fighting. Right. That's a lot of parliamentary inquiries. That's a lot of, you know, time and space and, you know, generally, you know, further, I think, you know, <laughs> negative impacts on whatever collegiality exists. Right. And and so how does that get balanced out, given, again, an electorate that seems to still be pretty, you know, again, a Republican electorate still seems to be pretty, you know, still seems to have a pretty good appetite for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that we have to kind of, you know, we, we're seeing an early you know, kind of taking of the temperature on this in terms of the yeah. the fight over, you know, that, that it's not even the fight, I should say this. You know, the the nominal challenge to the speaker, uh, to speaker feeling by forces that are co- coalescing around Representative Tinderholt um, and his declared candidacy about Democratic chairs. And, you know, that's kind of a heat check on this, you know, as you raise collegiality and, and the desire to work, you know, to cooperate on issues and on some of these things. I think how that gets handled is going to be very interesting. Well, and what I mean by that, just to be direct, is not, I mean, I don't, you know, Tony Tinderholt is not going to be speaker and I'll be shocked if Dade Phelan is not speaker again. But how much ground is given there? Yeah. You know, I think an early indicator, and it will not come as early as everybody wants probably because it never does, is when we see who the House committee chairs are, how many chairs Democrats do get, 
you know, I think I sat on here a few weeks ago, the obvious compromise here is to say, you know, I hear you and to say, you know, there'll be fewer Democratic chairs, but that's that's politically sensitive for the speaker. Although I, I you know, I will be surprised if we don't see a, you know, some decrease in the number of, of Democratic chairs from the previous session. What will that decrease be and where will those committee chairs be? Yeah. And ultimately, you know, you know, what this is about is, you know, I mean, again, the, De- the Democratic committee chair is a part of this. But what this is also about is the fact that, you know, in general, the House of Rep- you know, the House in Texas doesn't necessarily want to have a floor vote and a floor vote on every single piece of culture war policy that could right. come to their desks. And part of the issue about Democratic chairs, at least as I understand it, is the notion that is out there, which I think is, you know, both a notion among some voters, and I think it's fanned on by, you know, some representatives and, and their allies to say, well, look, we have a Republican legislature, we have Republican yeah. statements, we should be able to do whatever we want. But the issue is this assumes that there's really agreement even among Republicans that right. whatever we want is right. actually... Well, because one of the most active transmitters of that message is basically the other, you know, the Senate. Right. <laughs> and the lieutenant, you know, led by the lieutenant governor. You know, and this came up at the Tribune thing, too, and I think it was a good thing to kind of be handling it, is that given what we saw, given the results of the of the 2022 election, I think I have, I have every expectation that we are going to see one of the things that we've seen from the, from the Senate in previous sessions. It wasn't so prominent last time, which is, although it was there to some degree, which is the Senate sending over bills by the cartload, yep. you know, and the House having to figure out what they're going to do, in particular, the speaker and, and the leadership team. Right. All right. So before we run out of time, so let's go to another number, 20%. 20%, and this is from October of 2021, and goes back to the end of, you know, and remember, this was kind of the after-session poll <laughs> because uh, there were three special sessions last time. But, you know, at that point, only 20% approved of how state leaders in the Texas legislature had handled property taxes, and, you know, we mentioned property, you know, I mentioned pro- property taxes anecdotally, but this goes to a point that you were making this morning, which I think is, you know, I think you're right because it's so complicated. It, it comes up in some discussions. I think probably, I think we both agree not enough, but it is complicated. And that is when we're talking about this powerful impetus for property taxes reduction, that inevitably is going to cost money because of the interrelationship and the dependency between property taxes and school funding. Right. I mean, basically, I mean, it's one of these things, and it's, it's sort of so interesting to me that, like, this isn't, I mean, I don't know. It's not interesting. It's like one of the things that I feel like I've drawn it's out It's interesting of, when you're in a certain mood. Well, yeah. well, no, I mean, it's one of those things, like, you know, there, you could obviously fill many books with the things that, you know, people don't understand about things they don't care about, right? Yeah. But to me, this is one of those sort of fundamental relationships that I think gets oversimplified or just ignored perpetually both from the political standpoint but even once we get into the policy space here which is you know you can't mess around with property taxes without messing around with public school financing right and it's and that is not a little dial to be turning that's a big dial with a lot of yeah. with a lot of impact and so part of it is you know i mean there's this, all these questions to my mind about you know the idea of using you know again a surplus for something that ultimately is going to be an ongoing expense but also you know they'd have to make the public schools whole and this kind of goes back to the agenda question again, which is, OK, well, you know, what's on the agenda for public education? And I say, well, OK, obviously the Senate would like to do school vouchers. Right. There's also a lot of talk about curriculum. Right. There's a lot of talk about uh, LGBTQ students and, you know, sort of you know yeah. their, their rights. You know, there's talk about libraries. There's also, you know, potentially a real shortage in teachers. Right. There's school safety. 
Okay. And, and, you know, and I would also add that in the very, you know, in one of the, you know, kind of more old fashioned now, you know, concerns in public education, you know, we're seeing a lot of data about a real decrease in student achievement in the aftermath of the pandemic. Right. Absolutely. Which is a, a serious problem. It's Well, you know, it might even be a core problem. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's going to be. Well, it's one of those things, you know, if you're if you're an economist, you say, what's the most expensive problem of all these things? That's the most expensive problem. Right. right? I mean, a bunch of a bunch of third graders who can't read and fourth graders and fifth graders who can't read is a very, very expensive problem. Right. And it's a problem that ripples through. Yeah. No, I mean, and when I say yeah. that, when I say expensive, I mean, like, you know, like thinking about when these kids turn 25. I mean, that's yeah. how expensive we're talking about these kinds of problems. And so, you know, the sort of I mean, like the one thing that seems to be what everybody agrees on, which is, well, we're going to deal with property taxes. And everybody's kind of saying, yeah, look, you know, we've got to figure out a way to do something on this. We've got the surplus to do. It's like, yeah, but what happens to all of the, you know, the other things that come up because you deal with property taxes? And that's something that I'm kind of like, again, going back to, you know, we've talked about, you know, generally when you deal with the public school finance system, it's like a big deal. Like last time they did that, there was a whole inter, a lot of interim hearings, a big interim report, very good read, I recall, you know, really explained some of this stuff and what they were going to do and what the constraints are. That's not really how we're talking about this. And and what they did was substantial, but not it didn't it wasn't a fundamental redesign of the architecture or anything like that. I remember an, No, it was an adjustment of the formulas. Yes. I mean, ultimately what happened was the formulas had gotten out of whack to I mean the, the gist of yeah. this. I mean, everybody who listens to this should know, but if you haven't, just do this real quick yeah. because it's worth it, right? Basically, what happened was is that, you know, essentially property taxes fund, you know, local schools, but then to the extent they go over a certain amount of money for that area, they go to the state and the state then makes up some of the additional uh, money. And there's formulas that then basically divvy up that money to the school districts based on the number of students and the type of students. Right. Okay. The issue was over time, essentially, as property values have gone up and up and up and up, the share of money that's coming in via property values kept going up and the legislature realized, oh, we could spend less on our side because we'll still be spending the same amount of money. Yeah. But then what's happened is the balance over time between who's paying for the majority of public school funding had shifted to the taxpayer, to the homeowners, we would say, right? To, right or to property owners. So the legislature came back. They said, we need to adjust that formula. And ultimately what they did in that last session, I mean, again, I'm oversimplifying this and feel free yeah. to, you know, I'm being very clear. This is very oversimplified, but adjust the formula so that the state could then become the majority provider of the funds for public education right. while hopefully while trying to give teachers a raise and do some accomplish yeah. some other things and obviously reduce property taxes. Ultimately re-injected some funds that had actually been removed. Right. You know. But the difficulty is the fundamental problem that underlies this has not changed, which is that what what did this and what created the situation is that, you know, if property values keep going up, well then property taxes are necessary or property tax revenues are necessarily going to increase. We can try to constrain them, which the legislature has done. From the top, from the bottom, there are different right. ways they can yeah. try to constrain, and they've done all of these things. But ultimately, the market is what the market is for houses, and it creates this issue. But having said that, you can't just go in there and say, "Well, what if we just give everybody a, you know, what if we just increase everybody's, you know, homestead exemption?" It's like, well, okay, you got now you've got a big hole then in your public education budget that needs to be refilled, which is actually what you're refilling. That's right. actually where the money gets spent. But the issue becomes, you know, I mean, a couple of things. One is the political one, which is most people are not going to notice this property. This, right, this, which, this, we've, which we've found we've flogged, time and time again. You know. Seemingly large percent increases in the, in, the home, in, the, in the homestead exemption generate very low return per, per taxpayer. Per, per taxpayer, right. And right. So, but the whole— In this context, per voter. But the hole that you've created in, on the budget side right. is still there. And, you know, this is coming at a time when, for the reasons I was talking about before, I mean, you know, one of the 
data points that we can add to this. You know, only 6%, and this is a pretty steady, say that K-12 public education quality in Texas is excellent. That was as recent as October. You couple that with you know, the lost ground that we're experiencing in a, in, a, in, a, in a state education system that was functioning at best mediocre in terms of achievement and score anyway. Sure. It's kind of a, to me, at least from a policy perspective, it's a difficult position to stand up and say, yeah, we can give you a property tax cut, mm-hmm. Yeah. broadly speaking, but make edu- make the public education system whole again. Because the because uh, the obvious response to that is, hey, look, making it whole in the status quo, yeah, not really, kind of kind of not really doing much here, you know. Given all those things like teacher raises, and well, I think all the know, other, all the other things that could be done, you know, re- remediating lost, you know, finding out what you know, figuring out ways of you know what we're going to do to capture. But this, but, but I think the contrast exactly between like this sort of you know walking into kind of this idea that we're going to do a property tax reduction on the one hand, whereas when they actually did. Uh, work on the school finance system and property tax session and that and the property taxes in that session like that was a very concerted effort where i think everybody knew like okay we're doing these two things together and they yeah. have to happen together and so there was a yeah. there's a tandem conversation going on about these things whereas like right now i don't i don't see where the conversation like i'll say this in no in no preview that i've gone to or article that i've read have i seen any indication of of how the public school system would be made whole in the face of a property tax right. cut. And let a, alone. Let alone made better or improved yeah. or fixed or dealt with these major issues. And like, that's a big, big, big open question. Right. Particularly given that I think, you know, the politics of this are such that if you settle a deal on that, there is no way that the Senate and particularly the Lieutenant Governor is not going to hold any kind of deal hostage without some money for vouchers. Which could kill the whole thing. Whether it's a, yeah. you know, yeah, pilot program or whatever. So, you know, I think if there's one place you start looking for where, you know, we might wind up watching the legislature have to come back in June. <laughs> you know, it would be there. So, all right. So, you know, we've, we've gone on for a while. Fine. You know, we're going to start with one last, you know, end. we're going to tie end. this together. We're end. What you was said, that? You said start. I'm saying we're going to end. Well, we're, well yeah. We're, oh, well, we're going to start to tie this together. Oh, okay, right? got it. Sorry. We're going to start to tie this together with one last number that is not a poll number, but I think is critical here and, and points to some poll numbers. And that is 12.5%. 12.5% is not a poll number, but it is the average Republican margin of victory in the six top statewide races in the 2022 election. In other words, the non-judicial races. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as we know, you know, Governor Abbott wins by by 11%, and the others are, you know, sort of around that. You know, and it really does point to this macro level question that we're kind of elaborating here that kind of helps us end here, which is, you know, where does the agenda fall if we take, let's take... We'll take the two most recent sessions as like the model for, say, endpoints, right? 2019, as you were saying, being a very pragmatic session, bandwidth like taken up by this, you know, largely by this education property tax, you know, sort of discussion that went on. 2021 being, you know, as everybody is quick to trumpet, you know, the most conservative legislative session in the history of legislative sessions or Ever, something. anywhere. You know, I mean, I, you know, yeah, I, was, I guess you have to go back to post-reconstruction maybe, but, say. you know, it depends what you mean by conservative, I guess. Um, you know, and then you've, so you've got this debate with another layer of context there being, you know, Governor Abbott's job approval among Republicans right now after winning the election, about 80%. 
Right. Lieutenant Governor Patrick, about 70 percent, but proportional, you know, pretty close to the governor if you count, if you adjust for the degree to which, you know, many fewer people know who the lieutenant governor is than know who the governor is. And I think right now that there's just not a lot of clarity. We're already seeing, and we were talking about this before the, the podcast started. I mean, I think one of the things that we're seeing right now that really points to all this uncertainty is, you know, you look at. And again, we're reading for some de- some degree of tea leaves here, for sure. But the, if you think about it as signaling, you know, the agenda that that the governor kind of implied in the the night he was elected, mm-hmm. then you have the agenda laid out by Lieutenant Governor Patrick last week, week before last, and we're seeing the table set with the terms of what the trade offs are going to be here. And I think we've covered a lot of them in this. We've done a Yes. I'll pat, our, I'll pat ourselves on the back. a little more than I think we intend to. <laughs> We've got a lot of things on the table here. Yeah. Um, but that kind of gives you the sense of where the universe of trading is going to be. But I think, you know, the other thing that is interesting here is that we really are at a very kind of threshold moment policy-wise for the state. And that's why I wanted to emphasize, you know, the business pieces, the development, you know, this notion of, you know, if, if you take 2019 and you take 2021, what we're really looking at, I think, is like, what is the what is the mix between fan service to the Republican base and a broader vision of governance of the state? And as we circulate around in capital circles and start talking to people and begin to look at what the trade groups and the professional associations and the industrial associations are, are doing – you know, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And I think a lot of, you know, there are a lot of questions about how much responsibility the the legislature is going to take on right now for some of the big policy questions about what is going on in the political economy of the state and in the economy of the state. And I don't, I don't see a lot of clear signals about how that's going to be, how that's going to shake out yet. Yeah. That's an interesting way to put it. Make you it, know? Yeah. So I think this has been a, this has been a good this has been a good way of doing that. Yeah. You know, we've gone on for a while. I'm going to thank you for all the time you put into this and all the stuff you've done all this year since it's a year-end podcast. Oh, thank you. We've got a lot, you know, we've we've covered a lot of ground this year. We got a lot done. It's felt like a like a slog a lot of the time. I think we both But, you know, one of the funny things about doing this is it was a, this was a good exercise preparing for this and looking back and kind of going, you know, there's a lot of shit this year. Yeah, pretty interesting. <laughs> pretty interesting stuff. And there's a lot of stuff out there. That said, so what I'm going to say is you've made it this far, uh, you know, heads up, spoiler alert. Keep an eye out for a final poll of the year that we're going to do and that's going to drop at the end of the week. We're not even exactly sure when. It's a lot on the table right now, but certainly by the end of the week, we'll have a, a another poll that's somewhere between a taking stock it's not quite a it's it's not really a pre-session poll per se in a very direct way but it does look at some of the issues that we're talking about here in a way that we don't we haven't looked at in, at least in a while on some of these things and some of these is some yeah. some first effort stuff so keep an eye out for that cuz i think you know if if again if you're one of the people that listens to this and you've made it this far in this podcast yeah, there's be some interesting you'll probably you. be interested <laughs> yeah. in it so with that um, thanks again to josh uh, and thanks again uh, uh, to our excellent production team in the dev studio and the college of liberal arts here at ut austin we'll probably post this podcast since we the nature of this was so numerical uh, we'll put together a blog post with some of the data that we mentioned in here Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next year with another Second Reading Podcast. 
The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.